Welcome to Clets Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. In this episode of Clets Heads, we're talking about complementary schools or heritage language education. According to the United Nations, education in the mother tongue is a human right. But as we'll hear in this episode, it's unfortunately not a right that all children are able to exercise. Lyle Hussein shares the latest insights from research on the effects of these types of classes. We also hear from another Kletz Head of the Week. This time it's Sybil. She grew up learning Danish, Portuguese and French. She tells us about losing a language early in her childhood and how annoyed she got learning to read in French after having learned to read in Portuguese. There's also our final Kletz Heads quick and easy. Keep listening to find out more. Many bilingual children around the world attend heritage language education. Sometimes called complementary or supplementary schools, heritage language programs or mother tongue education, these schools offer children and young people a safe space where they can develop and maintain their heritage language and cultural identity. Classes take place at the weekend or after children are done for the day with a mainstream schooling and in many cases include not only language but also a cultural and sometimes a religious component. Provision varies from country to country and within countries from town to town, in part because such schools are established and maintained by community members, often on a volunteer basis. They may serve children from preschool right through to adulthood or a more limited age range and size varies depending on need and financial support. In a previous episode, we spoke to Gizzi Canazaro from the Heritage Language Education Network in Eindhoven, here in the Netherlands. She explained why parents enroll their children in such a heritage language program. The most common reasons that parents name for sending their children to heritage language lessons is they want the children to learn to read and write in the home language. They want them to improve their speaking confidence. They want to have them improve their grammar. And of course, they want them to understand the culture and history and geography of the home country. Very importantly, they want them to be able to communicate with family back in the home country, like their grandparents and their, and their cousins. In this episode, we're going to hear more about the research on heritage language education. Do certain types work better than others? What effect does attending these schools have on children's language development and their cultural identity? What other benefits are there? And other benefits for parents as well as children. We're going to find out the answers from Lyal Hussein, researcher at the University of East London. Lyal, who herself grew up bilingually with English and Arabic, started by telling me more about the situation with respect to complementary schools in the UK, where she's currently based. Complementary schools have become a uh, quite a, a big thing now, our movement, I'd say, in the UK for over half a century, probably. Uh, you obviously have a bit more in cities like London, particularly in areas like East London, where there's been high amounts of um, immigration, particularly since the mid-1900s when migrants were kind of arriving in the UK and started setting up these kind of community-led complementary schools or supplementary schools, as some people call them. And really how they emerged was because uh, communities weren't feeling uh, like their needs were being met from mainstream schooling. Uh, there were different kind of movements um, linked to this. So the first kind of uh, types of complementary or supplementary schools were more linked towards uh, English language learning, actually. So, um, and this uh -huh. was uh, largely around um, kind of the Afro-Caribbean families who migrated um, into the UK. You still have some of these around the UK. These are more associated with supplementary schooling and more to do with helping in children's English or helping them settle into the mainstream school curriculum. But then kind of the second group of complementary schools, which is what we hear more about now and what I looked at in my research was around the 1970s, early 1900s, um, and that was more to do with um, the teaching of heritage language um, and yeah. uh, supporting kind of language teaching that they didn't feel they would get in um, mainstream schooling. Uh, and these are kind of the most common type. Uh, you do also have, yeah. there was a... Yeah. 
a movement linked more towards religious um, complementary schooling, but this isn't as common as obviously the language teaching, which is what we see uh, around today. There's a lot of different estimates, but I'd say about 3,000 to 5,000 complementary schools dispersed really quite unevenly, to be honest, around the UK. Um, yeah. But we're getting more and more information on them and a lot of uh, research interest uh, into this as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so obviously in this episode, we're going to be talking about those, right? The, yes. the schools yeah. that focus on on the language, uh, the heritage language. I mean, are there other schools for pretty much every language uh, that's spoken as a heritage language? Or do we see some more dominant uh, than others or more popular? Uh, I think, I mean, I've seen such a range within our own project. I looked at five different complementary schools, um, but I mean, even if I look at the languages that were represented in our sample, it was over 35. Um, in certain areas, you do have obviously more predominant communities. So, for example, in East London, you have, um, let's say, more Bengali, Tamil, Gujarati communities, for example. So it really depends mm -hmm. as well on um history of immigration of, of that area. Um, if we look at the recent census as well in the UK, you'd see just a wide range, um, which is actually quite exciting in the UK. We have quite a lot of linguistic opportunity and, and uh, a lot of uh, different types of languages being spoken. Um, but yeah, one of the biggest ones, obviously, things like um, Polish, uh, Arabic as well is a growing one, Italian, German. Um, but no, I wouldn't, I, I would stress as well, you have quite a wide range of, let's say, what they call community languages. I don't know what the right word is to say, but it's, it would be languages that you wouldn't necessarily find uh, being offered in mainstream school curriculum. So what an example of this would be, for example, Albanian. Um, they don't have, for example, unfortunately yet any um, professional, let's say, A-level or, or GCSE qualifications so complementary schools become even more important for languages like that where they're not getting the, the support they would get in a mainstream provision I guess in this sense you know the 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 provision is going to depend obviously on the communities that uh, yeah. and the languages that they speak and the extent to which their uh, members of those communities want to um uh, you know, invest their time and energy in something like this because that's often what it comes down to. It but we'll, we'll yeah. maybe talk about that uh, a bit later. Do so. That's a, a sketch of the situation right now in the in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, do we see many differences across heritage language programs in in different countries? Uh, I think you definitely see kind of some similarities uh, with what we see in other countries and heritage language education in the UK, but I would say the context is really what differs here. So in the UK, we have um, kind of, uh, let's say, uh, political um, and social conditions that really make, make things different. Um, there's obviously been an incredible amount of research that's emerged. I think early research was more around settings like the US and Canada, particularly heritage language education um, in Spanish, yeah. for example. Um, mm -hmm. But I think uh, government support can really vary and that's where the, the difference really lies. Um, so in the United Kingdom, when we look at heritage language education and particularly the research that has emerged from that, uh, we see similar things in terms of the positive benefits linked to that. But the kind of extent of the support and how these operate are vastly different. Um, so I think these settings can often be under-recognized around the world, but particularly, particularly in the UK, I think they're quite vulnerable. We don't have um, funding for these settings. Um, they're incredibly yeah, under-recognized. So that makes it quite difficult for us to ascertain what exactly um, is, is happening. These settings can can vary as yeah. well quite a lot. So that's, I think, the main difference. But overwhelmingly, obviously, the growing research has shown the positive benefits of these programs. Um, and, yeah. and that's what we've seen also in the UK, kind of their links to children's social development, uh, their educational development as well, how they integrate into society. Uh, we've seen similar findings in that as well. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll get to those in a minute, of course. So, but I think that's actually uh, an important point as well. That the you know we're going to talk uh, in a moment about what exactly such a program looks like, um, and and then like you said, some of the benefits that have been found uh, in the research uh, looking at um, children in these programs. But of course, the the very practical aspects of how much 
how much cash have you got right how much support do you get um how to what extent are you facilitated by your your local council government whatever um that's also a really uh, a key factor and that can obviously differ across uh, countries and i I guess as well within countries uh, quite uh, quite frankly depending on how the countries are organized in in these uh, terms so what does heritage language education at, at these schools then look like for uh, parents who might be listening or teachers listening and thinking, okay, I've got a kid in my school who, who goes to this. What, what what are they likely to be doing? Or parents thinking, oh, maybe we should send our kids to uh, heritage language education, complementary schools. Yeah. What might they expect? What might they find there? Uh, yeah, I think... I mean, again, they can vary widely, but I think it's great to yeah. point out that yeah. they're, they're uh, much more than just educational spaces. So obviously their main purpose is to support children's heritage language learning, but they often do this through um, very creative ways. They'll link uh, a lot of the language learning going on to um, cultural activities as well. And uh, the, the way I kind of put it across in my own uh, research and my PhD is they really act as kind of community centers. They like to link uh, people together. Um, It really becomes quite a personal social thing. Parents are able to connect with other people in the community and children as well with their peers. Um, In the UK particularly, um, especially after the pandemic, I think uh, a lot of these schools are often relying on small small fees from kind of parents to offset their expenses. Usually they rely on volunteering staff with teachers often being members of kind of the community, um, some having overseas or UK qualifications or various teaching experience. And they're not largely kind of acknowledged by local authorities and they're renting premises, for example, um, because you know, they're not considered the state's responsibility. Um, but with that said, they they do have massive contributions to uh I'd say children's education. Um, We know, for example, there's also guidance for these settings. So if you're based in the UK, I'd recommend sort of the National Resources for Supplementary, National Resource Centre, sorry, for Supplementary uh, Education. Um, So they offer a lot of training uh, for these settings, a lot of quality assurance as well um, to make sure they're operating, you know, in a safe and great way. Um, But often I'd, I'd like to stress as well, the reason why they're such great assets as well to um, you know, children wanting to learn their heritage languages because often teachers uh, will be able to recognize uh, the backgrounds these, ch- these children are coming. These children are coming from. Uh, yeah. They'll make use of their kind of different languages in the classroom, um, so they they're able to kind of engage children into this and and keep them interested. Largely, I mean, not to generalize, but I think um, that's yeah, what yeah. they're good at yeah. is making heritage language learning interesting and. Um, giving them a space to kind of safely explore their identities and languages outside of yeah. school, if especially if they're not able to get that kind of in their mainstream yeah. primary or secondary school. Yeah, which is often, unfortunately, often yeah. often the case. Um, do other like, I know, you know, it's. I think we're going to say this several times in this episode, it's hard to generalize, yeah. right? Because there is so much variation. So, you know, what we say isn't going to hold for every single supplementary, uh, complementary school uh, out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to what extent do they work with uh, specific curricula then? Yeah, I mean, in our own research, we, we found that, yes, uh, they tend to follow, they 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 think of themselves as sort of operating in the same way a school would. So they would have, you know, the same sort of structure um, curriculum as well. Sometimes they'll do their own books. And like you said, it also depends on the type of support they're getting. Um, So some of the schools we worked with, yes, we're getting that support from embassies, for example. So that makes things a lot Mm -hmm. easier in terms of um, uh, the books, curriculum and support they were, they were getting. Uh, But yes, largely they will follow um, a set curriculum, but in my experience, are also uh, quite creative and innovative, uh, tend to be uh, flexible because they're aware that the children coming to these schools are also not your typical, let's say, um, especially if they're, let's say, second generation bilinguals, which is usually the case with complementary schools. uh, That's where I feel they become a bit more innovative in their teaching practice because they'll integrate a lot of what the 
uh, students are learning in their mainstream schools, for example, to try and um, make it relevant and interesting. But definitely, uh, I've found they follow set curriculum uh, based on yeah, their communities. So what do the language practices look like in complementary schools? Is it essentially, you know, monolingual education in the heritage language or can we better think of it as a kind of bilingual education? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it can largely be dependent on obviously the communities attending these settings, particularly if they're, for example, first or second generation bilingual mm. learners. Um, in my experience, and particularly we know in the UK, uh, English or the host or majority language is still largely spoken in these classrooms, but um, it's kind of used uh, in a flexible and, and useful way to help help them uh, learn the heritage uh, language. Um, there are studies that have kind of looked at the kind of language practices uh, yeah. in these classrooms. They've shown that children tend to code switch quite a lot, or you might have heard the term translanguaging, for example. Um, and yeah, they, they found that this is obviously quite, quite useful for these children. They're able to use a range of kind of their linguistic resources in a flexible way in these classrooms. Um, with that said, though, there is a challenge in these schools where sometimes uh, kind of certain uh, standards of the language are, are, are being uh, considered more superior than other dialects, right. for example. So that's something to be worth. That's something uh, worth considering. Um, but largely, uh, uh, research has shown that complementary teachers, particularly, tend to understand um, kind of the the background students are are coming from and make the most of of this in their own teaching whether that's using kind of their their different languages different cultural life worlds um building strong relationships with them uh responding flexibly to their needs whether that be uh introducing concepts sometimes in english sometimes in the heritage language and drawing on their different kind of knowledge to explore concepts and skills also linked to the mainstream mainstream school curriculum I think complementary schools yeah. tend to have quite a good understanding of the mainstream yeah. mainstream school curriculum and they use this um to to kind of get children's interest in the heritage language but also help them kind of become more proficient in the heritage yeah. language which makes total mm. sense right I mean if you want to yeah. get kids interested in something uh, you better start with where they're at and their world right now especially I guess because we haven't spoken about that yet, if you want to get them enthusiastic about going to school on a Saturday or a yeah. Sunday, right? Because I can Definitely. imagine some kids are like, really? We're going to leave our conversation with Lyal now to listen to this episode's Quick and Easy, a concrete tip you can put into practice straight away to make the most out of the bilingualism in your family, class or clinic. Clet said quick and easy. Many bilingual children read or are learning to read in their heritage language. Some find this easier than others. Attending heritage language classes can certainly help with this, but sometimes, for whatever reason, this isn't an option. If you want your child to read in his or her heritage language, it helps if you can make sure it's necessary to do so. We've often talked in the podcast about the need to create speaking opportunities for children in their heritage or home language. So authentic moments when they need to use that language to get something done. Reading is no different. Clet's Head's Quick and Easy for today, again taken from the Peach Project, helps you to do just this. Create a reading problem which your child will want to solve. For example, you could write them a note and put it in the lunchbox, or butty box as we call it in the north of England. In and of itself, this is perhaps not a problem that they have to solve, but they will no doubt be extremely curious to know what you've written, and this will hopefully motivate them to actually read the note. Of course, some children will enjoy getting a letter like this at school more than others. If your child is one of the others, that's certainly the case for my two, you can adopt the same approach at a different time or in a different place. You could, for example, write a letter and leave it on the table when they come home from school with instructions about some yummy snack that you've hidden somewhere or leave a note under the pillow before they go to sleep with a cute or funny message. Another thing that you can do is to enlist help from the grandparents. 
ask grandma or grandad to send a postcard or an email or an app, preferably with some request of some kind so that the message does indeed require a response. In many cases, grandparents don't know or understand their grandchild's other language, the language that they use at school. So it's in a certain sense in their own interests to help you out, to get your child to learn and use and read in the heritage language more often. Another option, if, for example, you need to look something up on the internet, would be to ask your child to do this in the heritage language. There too, some children will enjoy doing this more than others. But if you keep it lighthearted, choose a topic that they find interesting themselves, help them if they find it difficult. This can be a great way to encourage reading in the other language. So then, our Klet's Head's quick and easy for today is to create a reading problem that your child will want to solve. Klet's Head's quick and easy. All right, so we've spoken about what the schools uh, are, what they involve and what the actual the education, the language practices might look like when you, uh, when you get there. Um, but what do we know from research about the effects of attending? complementary schools, heritage language education on children's language development. But I think that's why a lot of parents send their children to such schools. Does it work? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, in our own research, we found um, children that we compared children that attended complementary schooling to those that didn't. We found that those that attended complementary schooling um, reported higher heritage language proficiency, but this was the most uh, noticeable in literacy, uh, right. so reading and writing and their heritage yeah. language. And that's what a lot of previous research has also shown, mm-hmm. um, that these schools really help, particularly with that, um, particularly during the pandemic, uh, which some of my research was done during the pandemic. We found that complementary schools offered a really good kind of protective factor, let's say, for heritage language loss. So uh, compared to students who weren't attending these settings, a lot of them uh, reported a lot less uh, proficiency in their heritage language. But those that continued to attend complementary language schooling, even if that was online, kind of preserved a lot of their heritage language proficiency. This is largely in part, obviously, because of the extra teaching they're getting, but also a lot to do with the peer relationships um, within these schools and the larger community. They have more opportunities for exposure um, to the language, but importantly, opportunities to practice the language, um, whether that be through activities, relationships in the classroom. Um, and yeah, th- that we found even in our research, it's not necessarily children that attend these schools aren't necessarily getting this exposure at home. So parents are really going to these settings to get that extra exposure and support and they, they do get it. Um, and it does tend to be, yeah, quite effective in helping maintain a heritage language. With that said, research has also shown as children get older, um, it becomes increasingly more difficult to kind mm-hmm. of maintain this proficiency. Uh, so that's where complementary schools, even in our project, have said they struggle more as kind of the demands of the mainstream school curriculum become bigger, particularly in the UK and secondary school things like GCSE and A-levels take over and then English becomes, you know, more and more the dominant language. So it's definitely still a challenge. I I won't undermine that, but I think complementary schools are a great asset towards trying to overcome this challenge. Yeah. So if you're listening as a parent and, you know, are experiencing some challenges or struggles with uh, the heritage language development of your child, or you're wondering about how if... Uh, you can teach them to read and write, then heritage language education would be a great tool in your toolbox, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think if you want to know more about what setting up such a program involves, right, because, you know, you might be interested, but there may not exist a school uh, near to where you live, wherever that might be, then listening to the episode that we just heard a clip with uh, Gizi, then she also talks about what, what's involved in actually setting up such a program as a parent, which is something that she did. Um, We're going to hear another clip now from a previous episode when I spoke to the 19-year-old Torin who attended Dutch complementary school in Hong Kong. And here's what he had to say about his experience. I know you followed 
Dutch education abroad, like heritage language schools, it's often called, or community language schools, where you uh, you go to classes in a language that's not the majority or the school language uh, in yeah. the place where you live. What what was that like? My primary school years, I actually went to a physical uh, school on the other side of Hong Kong from where I live. I'd go there every Wednesday after my, you could say, English school, my English classes. Uh, and I'd have class for about two hours. I don't remember the exact uh-huh. time. This is a way of sort of bringing a lot of Dutch people together in one place, right? A lot of Dutch families from Hong Kong would send their kids here. And this is where we'd almost, yeah. this is where we'd all meet up. We'd have discussions. We'd have fun, all that sort of stuff. Obviously, seven-year-old me didn't enjoy it so much. I'd rather be at home playing video games, but. <laughs> <laughs> I have a seven-year-old at home who would probably agree with you if I tried to send him to English yeah. class. But I had a deal with my parents that uh, every Wednesday, because we went to Dutch school, as sort of compensation as our reward, we'd have a pancake day for So we'd have pancakes for dinner. And uh-huh. that tradition is still stands today, even though I'm not at Dutch school and none of my brothers and sisters are at Dutch school. Every Wednesday is still pancake day oh, in, yeah. uh, in our house. That's, uh, yeah, that's a fun little <laughs> fact about us. Yeah, that's nice. There were lots of multilingual children and uh, young adults like yourself growing up here in the Netherlands who speak a different language than Dutch yeah. at home. And some of them do attend these heritage language schools, though they're not always considered that beneficial, I think. How do you feel about that when you hear that? For one, I think there are multiple benefits. Firstly, it does keep you sort of uh, up to date. It does keep you sort of linked to your home country. Uh-huh. So... For example, we we wouldn't just learn Dutch in these schools. We'd also have discussions about what's happening in the Netherlands. It maintains that link a bit. In Hong Kong, I know there's also parents who are Dutch and kids who don't speak any Dutch at all. They have very little or to no interest in the Netherlands. They don't view themselves as Dutch anymore. A second reason that my parents would always tell me is um, it was always that with that um, aim of when I grew older, when I was 18, 19, like now, I would have the opportunity to study in the Netherlands and knowing yeah. Dutch when you come back is it, just, it's beneficial because I mean, when you live here, everyone does speak English, except I think you are missing out a bit if you don't speak Dutch. And I do find, you know, when I compare myself to some of my international friends here, when we are meeting for new Dutch people, for example, or we are in a Dutch, uh, more Dutch community, it's a lot easier for me to sort of join that group and become a part of that group than it is for some of my international friends because my my friends they don't speak dutch yeah so i think another it just it helps you keep your option open and in the sense that it helps maintain that link to your home country and it maintains that option that your child can go back to your home country and have an almost native experience alongside the international experience they've already had yeah. And even, even I guess, if you're not intending or there's not even an option or an interest for, a, you know, a child to go to the other country when they're older to study or to work or anything like that, there's also the question of being able to talk to you. To your family. To your grandparents, because often they won't speak the new language that you're learning. So... Torwin was pretty positive then about his experience following Dutch language education in Hong Kong, at least looking back it sounded like at the time he did need a bit of persuading to attend and I joked before about kids do they want to go to school on a Saturday or a Sunday Um, do we know anything from research about how children themselves feel about the heritage language education yeah and in our own research uh, we found that the children attending these settings uh when we asked them, felt very largely positive about them. They felt it significantly contributed to their language learning and they've made, you know, good friendships there. But uh, by all means, sometimes I think uh, other research has shown that children can sometimes see this as a chore. I think Mm -hmm. uh, in the interviews I had with uh, complementary school staff as well, um, that's a main kind of objective for them is making sure that children want to and and find it interesting uh, to attend these classes. So I think that is important to highlight that children have to want to go to the uh, uh, these classes and find them interesting. Um, but I think usually the way uh, these schools are set up, how they're kind of linked to um, more cultural learning, um, bringing new cultural elements into the child's life, um, you know, uh, helping them be more confident as well in general and and other things. So we looked at things like social competence, for example. Um, We know that 
Right. Yeah, they, they, it is It isn't necessarily this like dreaded school thing. They have to go on the weekends. Actually, it can be quite fun. It can be a very social, interesting, new thing that's quite different to what they do in mainstream school. Um, but yeah. definitely, I think there needs to be more research that looks at children's perspectives. I looked at that a bit in my own research. But often, yeah, we look at more of the parents, teachers' perspectives. So it'd be great to have more research that looks into um, children's own perspectives, particularly, you know, from different generations. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's great to also hear positive experiences um, uh, like like what you just showed uh, from the clip. Um, we know that, yeah, these schools are quite complex sites for children to navigate their identities. Um, but yeah, the, in our own research, we found it really positively influenced kind of ethnic identity formation. They felt much more positively about both their British and ethnic identities. It helped them integrate better into society overall. Um, and that's what the overall research shows is that, um, that, you know, developing obviously your heritage languages tends to obviously also be quite linked to your cultural identity and identity yeah. formation. You said you found advantages for social competence. I'm not sure everybody will know. I'm not sure I really know yeah. what that means. <laughs> what, what do you, can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, of course. So basically what we were looking at was um, how children also felt about themselves. So sometimes that's also linked to things like self-esteem, for example. Um, but we were looking at much younger children uh, in our project. Um, and yeah, it's kind of, we looked at perceived competencies. So how they kind of feel in social situations. We also looked at cognitive competence, athletic competence, so really what they feel about themselves yeah. in all these different areas. Um, and what we found is, particularly during the pandemic, uh, children who were attending complementary schools um, didn't really show any dip uh, or as significant of a, a change at all, really, in their social perceived social competence, and they scored much higher in their perceived social competence. And um, we obviously don't know entirely the factors around this, but we can kind of uh, assume this might be linked to um, the wider community they had access to at this time. A lot of them were still obviously attending complementary schooling. Some of it also switched yeah. largely online, but that still meant they mm -hmm. had this kind of consistent access to a wider community, to uh, wider support, particularly, again, going back to this important factor of peer interactions and having these, um, uh, you know, friends that might share also yeah. similar, obviously the same language as them or identity as them uh, or experiences as them. So I think that's a very important factor alongside the benefits you see with um, maintaining a heritage language. How old were the children in your study? We started off with children between um, kind of the ages of four to nine. And then uh, by the time we finished our project, the oldest was 12. Uh, so really primary school age yeah. children. Yeah. 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 But the youngest was four, actually. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Great. One thing maybe that's worth noting um, in our research, but also in others, Heritage language proficiency and exposure is often linked to socioeconomic status or family affluence. You might have heard that word. So really what yeah. that means, if, uh, you know, with more affluence, that might be linked to more opportunities to learn the language. Um, uh, so that is also an important factor uh, t to consider why, you know, <laughs> some children might be getting more interactions than others. Um and, and yeah. by that, do you mean that the children attending heritage language education are likely to be from more affluent families? Or do you mean that heritage yeah. language education might offer children from less affluent backgrounds opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have? Yeah, I think it's an important question because that's what I ended up uh, really posing as well in my own research because we found initially that actually, yes, the complementary school attendees were more affluent um, than non-attendees. Uh, but then when we also factored this in, you know, to our findings, we still were finding the positive effects of, you know, um, complementary school attendance. So it's not, you know, that because they're affluent, that's why they're getting yeah. these benefits. We do have a lot of complementary schools that, that um, do you know offer a lot of free classes for example um and yeah you'll get different communities but in our project anyway they were more affluent and that's worth considering as a important factor
So yeah, so I think that is an important point that there are other factors at play in this and the research is done with certain groups and it maybe doesn't cover all different uh, options. And there is this question of, you know, if you have to pay for something, uh, and I'm guessing yeah. most, you said some of it is some schools offer uh, yeah. free provision, but I can imagine for for many there is some payment involved and, and this might not get priority if you don't have uh, that much uh, income at exactly. your disposal. But I think it's interesting to note, like you just said, that if you, as we say in the research, if you control for this particular aspect, so you basically take away any possible effect of the the affluence level, right, of the mm-hmm. families, we still yeah. see that positive effect of yes. complementary schooling. Yeah, so that's really yeah. key. In a moment, we'll talk to Lyal about the effects of complementary schools on parents and about the potential role that teachers in mainstream schools can have in supporting heritage language education. But first, we hear from our Clets Head of the Week. Clets Head of the Week. I'm Sybil, I'm 25, um, and I'm currently living in Amsterdam. And I speak uh, French, Portuguese, and English. So you were uh, raised bilingually and presumably not in the Netherlands, given that you don't, uh, (laughs) Dutch was not one of those languages that you just listed. (laughs) So can you tell me about the languages that you heard when you were growing up and who who you speak each language with? Yeah, so um, I spent my first four years in Denmark. So... um, up to that time, I mostly spoke Danish, uh-huh. uh, although we would also speak uh, French at home. And then um, uh, we moved to Portugal, and, and I started to speak uh, Portuguese uh, then, and I kept speaking French. Uh, and uh, I eventually forgot all of my Danish. So Danish and Portuguese were the languages that you learned at school. I guess, or or daycare or outside the home. What's the home situation like? So my mom is Portuguese, Uh um, although she also, she grew up in Venezuela. So she also speaks Spanish. Uh And I I can have conversations in Spanish, but I wouldn't say that I'm, um, I don't have the same level as I do in French or Portuguese. And... But she also speaks French, and my dad is French, so they would speak French to each other. And so then when I moved to Portugal, I I guess there was kind of a switch, and I started to speak Portuguese at home with my mom, Uh and French with my dad, and then also Portuguese at school. Uh And what what was going on at home then when you were in Denmark, so like in the first four years of your life? Did your mom speak French or Portuguese with you, or both? Both, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But I think, uh, I, I don't know why, but um, I wouldn't respond to her if she spoke to me in French. So at some point she decided to switch entirely to Portuguese with me. But that was, um, I think I, I was already two or, or something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Do you, re- do you remember? No, not at all. <laughs> I know that when we left, um, if I was left alone to play with my toys or something, I would speak Danish and my parents couldn't understand it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Have you got brothers or sisters? Yeah. I have a a brother, but he was two months old when we, when we moved. So he's had a a completely different experience, I would say. Oh yeah. What languages do you speak or do I speak with him? Yeah, so we speak Portuguese, um, and then uh, it's funny because I speak French to my dad and and Portuguese to my mom, and then my brother will speak Portuguese to both, Uh even though my dad speaks in French to him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's a a bit about how how you grew up. What about now? Because now you're living in the Netherlands, right, where you've come to do your studies, um, English language study. How, how, what languages are you using now? Um, <clears throat> so mostly English. <laughs> I guess I understand uh, Dutch to some extent, but I can't speak. Um, 
but now I, well, I have a pet and <laughs> I, I speak to him in, in Portuguese. Uh -huh. um, and that's um, about as much Portuguese I, I speak daily, I guess. I, yeah. I don't really have um, friends here with whom I, I speak Portuguese. Yeah. And uh, French, I, I, I use it um, sometimes with my family if we call. For example, yeah. Um, no, I'm about to leave to France, so the picture is um, uh, is gonna change a little uh -huh. bit. I'm I'm gonna start using it daily. So are you going to? You're moving to France. Yeah. Okay. So to do. Uh... I'm quite excited. Um, I'm gonna continue my studies there, um, at university and. Um, I'm going to be uh, working with sign languages over there. Uh-huh. So, another language? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what about Spanish then? Because you said, you introduced yourself and you said, you know, I speak French, Portuguese and English. And then yeah. you just dropped in there. Oh, yeah, I, I speak enough Spanish. I, you know, I can have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so, what? How? how come? Um, I don't know. I think I... I must have heard my my mom speaking spanish to her relatives yeah and i do remember uh when i was a little older so after i was four or something i remember playing with my toys in spanish at some point um and i i can understand and read and have conversations but uh I don't really know what my relation is to the language. Yeah. Uh, do you think yeah. having French and Portuguese has helped you with that? Oh, yeah. That they're so related. Yeah. 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 What does it mean to you to be multilingual? I think, well, I have roots in several places, I guess. And it also helps me connect with people from a lot of different corners in the world. And, um, yeah, I, I think... From a young age, I was super interested in other languages as well and how different they were and how similar they were. Um, so I think it kind of instilled me um, a little passion for languages uh -huh. and, and traveling as well. Yeah, yeah. Would you say that's the biggest advantage of being bilingual? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. Yeah, you can communicate to, with more people. I would say there's something I really like about being bilingual is the fact that I can understand humor uh -huh. <laughs> in several languages. Um, but again, then humor is also not really translatable. So that would be a downside of it. Yeah. And and um, are you funnier in one of your languages? Ooh, <laughs> I think it depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> And do you see any disadvantages to being multilingual? Mm, I think it can um, kind of affect yourself, uh, your sense of identity, I would say. Mm -hmm. Especially if, for example, you grow up in Europe where uh, we often associate um, our identity to the language the language we speak for kids it can be a bit hard to understand mm. why they they speak so many languages um, but I, I would say it brings a lot of richness into your life as well yeah and what about you, the the issues that you just mentioned with identity is that something that you found yourself yeah for example uh, as a kid especially I found it quite hard to, well, first to move to Portugal, but um, the fact that I forgot all of my Danish, but mm. I still had some memories with friends from Denmark. Yeah. That made it quite hard, I think, to <laughs> really understand who I was as a kid, because even at school, I wasn't really, I mean, I am Portuguese, but I wasn't really quite like the other kids, I yeah. guess. Yeah. But I couldn't really access that past life of mine if i can call it yeah that way yeah yeah it's interesting that right have you ever tried to learn portuguese uh not portuguese danish since i have <laughs> um 
I've always quite hoped that I would go back to to Denmark for one month and maybe I would uh, just suddenly remember everything. Yeah, so I've tried learning it with online apps and um, sometimes I guess I get um, flashbacks where I just remember some expressions and I never really went through with learning it again or... um, but I do feel like I've, I've had experiences where I was um, studying a new language mm-hmm. and there were some sounds in common that don't exist in either French or Portuguese. And I could produce these sounds. And they were also present in Danish. Uh-huh. And I think, it I don't know, maybe this is totally wrong, but um, I do think on some level uh, kind of helped me understand Dutch to some to to some extent yeah yeah quite possibly yeah so I'm guessing you don't have children of your own no not yet not yet (laughs) so imagine if you were to have children what language languages do you think you would speak to them in have you ever thought about that Mm -hmm. I would try to go for um, Portuguese French and English yeah depending on where I also have them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think I would definitely try to, to do it. I don't know if I would um, switch, for example, on a weekly basis or uh, just use the languages for different things or make them watch shows or maybe read to them in a specific language. Mm-hmm. But I would definitely try, yes. Yeah. Well, I guess you've got a. A while to think about it, uh, if and when it happens. Have you got a favourite word in any of your languages? I can speak some French, I can't speak Portuguese. Hmm. Then I should go for Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> um, a favourite word. Or a word that you think, you know, that's a word I always use in Portuguese. You know, uh, I'm sure you know in Dutch, yeah, everybody always says gezellig, which means mm-hmm. it's translated as cosy. I suppose it's a bit mm-hmm. like Danish hugger, right? Yeah. Uh, people say it's untranslatable or it's something that you always fall back in, even when you speak in a different language, you always say that word in, in, in Dutch. So anything like that in uh, Portuguese? Uh, we do have such a word, I would say. Uh, we have the word saudade, um, which you might have heard uh, a song that goes saudade, saudade. <laughs> <sighs> Um, and this means the um, the act of uh, longing for for someone or something, but in a nostalgic, melancholic way. Uh huh. Um, and uh, it's funny because so this uh, this word is said to only exist in in Portuguese, and it comes from uh, a Latin word which meant solitude. Uh-huh. So there's a, a lot of um, more of the negative connotations to the uh, feeling of missing someone uh-huh. or, or something or a certain period of your life. It's more than nostalgia and, um, and it's more than longing. Uh-huh. And it's present in all of our literature and uh, poetry as well. understand the portuguese you need to understand what was it so that yeah 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 i would say so yeah and um have you got a really difficult word to pronounce in portuguese <laughs> i i do <laughs> it's a very long one i think that's why it's so hard <laughs> go on then give it to me um otorrinolaringologista okay do it do it slowly otorrinolaringologista Otoringo Lagino Logista. What does it mean? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it's a, a type of medical specialization. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but it's the word that uh, most kids uh, struggle with uh, in primary school, you know, like, <laughs> oh, I know a really difficult word. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. This would be the one. <laughs> yeah. So can you you can read then in all your languages, I guess, because you already said you could read in Portuguese. And then what about French? How did you learn to read in French? So regarding French, um, 
after I learned how to read Portuguese, I kind of picked French on my own. Like I was, mm. I don't know, I started looking at books and I could make out, uh, well, I, I guess I self-taught myself how to read. Um, and then uh, in school, I also took three years of French. And then at university, I took some um, courses that were taught in French. So that kind of helped me consolidate uh, my reading knowledge. Um, I do remember at first um, it was harder to read in French, of course, because uh, I had already had so many years of reading in yeah, Portuguese, yeah. I guess. Can you remember what you found hard about it? Is it too long ago now? Well, I remember the specific instance <laughs> Uh, where, for, for instance, you have the word Chinua, uh, which means Chinese, and it's written, uh, it, it has a really weird spelling, actually. It's uh, C-H-I-N-O-I-S. And I remember turning to my dad and, and being like, Is, does this mean Chinua? How come? And um, all of these... Uh, weird uh, letter combinations um, really struck me at first. And I used to make fun of my dad for, for writing like this as well. <laughs> uh, I really did not understand why it had to be so complex. Yeah, so I guess Portuguese is pretty uh, tran transparent, right? The link between the, the letters and the sounds is pretty one-on-one, -on -one, right? It is more, you know how people say that Spanish is really transparent? Yeah. I would say Portuguese is uh, halfway between French and Spanish. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. You yeah. don't have any silent letters or, um, or letters that are read in a completely unintuitive way. Yeah. But we do have letters with multiple possible sounds, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So there's no equivalent of the... The O-I-S at the end of Chinois no. in uh, Portuguese. No. And, of course, in English is just full of uh, uh, things like that as well. Just one one last uh, question before we stop. So which which language or languages do you dream in? Do you know? No, I actually, I think I remember sometimes having dreamt in a, ling in a language that I don't even speak. <laughs> so I, I, I think it's impressive. My, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what my brain is doing in those cases, but um, I think I dream mostly uh, with emotions. Yeah, yeah. You're not yeah. the first uh, first guest to say something like that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. So, are you always finished by asking our Kletz head of the week to t say, uh, um, or to teach me actually, thank you and goodbye in one yeah. of, one of your languages? So I know a French. So let's do a. Uh, Let's do Portuguese. How do you say thank you and goodbye in Portuguese? So thank you uh, in my case, because um, uh, I'm a woman, I would say obrigada. Obrigada. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, goodbye would be adeus or ciao. So, <laughs> uh, obrigada, Sibyl, and adeus. <laughs> obrigada, <laughs> adeus. <laughs> Let's head off the week. We've spoken a lot about then effects on on uh, children, right? But what about parents, right? Because often parents, yeah, it varies, I guess, the level to which they're involved in uh, the uh, heritage yeah. language ex education. But for them too, mm -hmm. it may offer an opportunity to meet with other community members that they might not do otherwise. Do we know anything about benefits for parents then? Parents are often actively encouraged to get involved in their child's learning, to be a part of the wider community. In some cases, um, we've also seen that they're given support to help integrate into the country. So that may be through things like English classes or workshops or, you know, support with the mainstream school curriculum. Um, but as I mentioned, particularly in the pandemic, uh, these schools kind of 
in the UK anyway, acted even more as community centers. Um, some of them offered support even more directly through things like donations and food drives. So it can definitely be a great way for parents to be a part of the community, have a wider support network, as you mentioned. Um, some parents actually would volunteer or work with complementary schools, so that offers other benefits, uh, things like employability, for example. Um, and yeah, research has shown that parents tend to report, you know, a, a positive impact uh, in their lives, that it's helped them engage more in their child's learning. It's allowed them to be a part of a larger linguistic, but also cultural um, community. And these benefits seem to extend even to the wider community. Some research has shown, for example, that this type of schooling has been shown to have a positive effect overall on just the perception of bilingualism uh -huh. uh, in, in an area. Um, so yeah, definitely it has benefits uh, much more than just to the children themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, before we wrap things up then, um, I want to uh, switch tack slightly and talk more about mainstream schools actually because, you know, by definition obviously complementary schools fall outside mainstream education yeah. um in your experience then to what extent are teachers at mainstream schools aware of uh heritage language education and and what what do they think of it i mean again you know we're generalizing but you know in your experience what have you found yeah um i mean i think there's been more interest definitely and calls to connect uh these sectors um, in our own research we did interviews with teachers at primary mainstream schools and uh, i would ask them if they knew of complementary schools while most of them are not or actually all of them might have heard of them at some time uh the majority actually were not so aware of how children practice their languages outside of school mm -hmm. um only one of the four schools in our project actively engaged with complementary schools and they did this by offering their space um, for free on Saturdays. Right. Um, but yeah, a common theme that kind of emerged was this kind of lack of information schools felt they had on children's languages and, and their home lives um, and what they were doing outside of school. Uh, but uh, they did have this kind of desire um, to, to want to be inclusive towards this. Um, and so I think there's definitely an opportunity to connect them. Uh, we know, obviously, how teachers are often overstretched in their roles, so uh, I wouldn't um, suggest that this burden falls on them, but it would be great uh, if schools and teachers could maybe make it more of an intention, let's say, to find out the languages spoken at home and recognize these languages at school, as you mentioned. If there's a particular, for example, community uh, that's that's widely, you know, um, attending uh, the school, perhaps reaching out uh, to these parents, uh, whether that be obviously through workshops or open days, um, uh, trying to again, recognize what that brings uh, to the school environment. Um, and yeah, I think one of the easiest ways we found, for example, is even hosting a complementary school. So if you know there's um, parents that might be interested in this, would they want yeah, your classroom space, for example, on a Saturday, or would they want any particular resources or support? It's just, yeah, making that effort to really find out the backgrounds of your students and and allowing them to feel comfortable in, in celebrating, you know, encouraging, sorry, this multilingualism in your classroom, making sure they don't, it's particularly in the UK, there's a lot of research that has shown children sometimes feel embarrassed to even mention they go to complementary schools, for example. Right. So just making it, you know, um, more of an open conversation and, and being curious uh, to what your students are, are doing with the other languages and how that can be brought into your classroom would be an excellent start, I think, in fostering multilingualism. I completely agree. And I hope that this episode with Lyell has inspired both teachers and parents listening to explore the options for heritage language education or complementary schools in your local area. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, access to mother tongue education is considered a human right by the United Nations. But as we heard in today's episode, we have a long way to go before all children are able to exercise this right. And that's a shame because, as Lyle explained, there are many ways in which heritage language education can be beneficial. It can support bilingual children's development, not only in their proficiency in their heritage language or mother tongue, 
but also in terms of their identity, as well as having benefits for parents and the wider community. In order for all children to benefit from such advantages, we'd need this form of education to be supported by policymakers and to be taken seriously. Thanks to Lyell for taking the time to talk to us today. If you want to know more about heritage language education, there are many organisations around the world that can help. Here in the Netherlands, there's the Heritage Language Education Network. We heard from their director, Gizi, earlier on in the episode. On their website, they have both a directory of complementary schools in the Netherlands, as well as resources for heritage language programmes from around the world, and some great materials also on reading in the heritage language, the topic of our last episode. If you didn't hear that already, then go back and listen to that one. The Heritage Language Education Network is, as I said, based in the Netherlands, but there's plenty of information there that's relevant for people from other countries. And Lyal mentioned also the National Resource Centre for Supplementary Education in the UK. Links to both are in the show notes. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in a month's time with an episode about bilingualism and dyslexia. And then it's time for our final episode of the season, which will in fact be the final episode of Klet's Heads. I'll tell you more about that next time. Until then. If you want to know more about Klet's Heads, go to our website at kletsheadspodcast.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Klet's Heads using your favourite podcast app. If you know someone else who might enjoy the podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with them. You can do this via the website or in your podcast app. And if you're on social media, we'd love it if you followed us. Our handle is at Klet's Heads. Thanks for listening and until the next time. Or as we say in Dutch, tot de volgende keer.